Hello and welcome to the Spectator Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and this week my guest is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS, among many other roles he's played and continues to play, and the author of a new, his first, I'm surprised to say, book, How Britain Really Works, Understanding the Ideas and Institutions of a Nation. Stig, welcome. Hello. What got you going on this book? I mean, it's a bland question, but it's kind of... And Paul Morgan, it's very all-encompassing, isn't it? Yeah, I, I wrote a piece on the TLS website about football and about my experience of growing up as a Nottingham Forest fan in the 90s and then watching Euro 96 and writing about how football used to mean something nationally, particularly when England kind of did all right in events. So I grew up when in the 1986 World Cup, they did all right. The 1990 Cup in Italy, they would, they got to the semi-finals and they did the same in 96. And it was this nationalist moment where football was kind of a keynote for the nation and it was very exciting. And I was noting that in the various tournaments since, that's gone away and we're left with this very desultory half interest in it. We're still singing Three Lions. We're still singing Three but but no one really believes anymore and it doesn't really matter. But it did matter to me and maybe it was my age but maybe it was the generation and maybe it was the times and and a a publisher came to see me and said oh that was interesting have you thought about writing a book and I had this idea of doing a book about the history of expertise because this wasn't long after Michael Gove had said we'd had enough of experts in this country. And I thought the idea of expertise was kind of interesting. You know, at what point did we start valuing experts for themselves? And what point was it, was it just this kind of the amateur, that sort of Victorian amateurishness where, where people became experts for the love of it? And I thought that'd be quite interesting. Then I realised I wasn't the person to write that. You're not an expert. No, I'm not enough of an expert. Uh, and, but I got talking to this publisher and then I wanted to do an explainer, really. Because about, I think, I do a bit of punditry. I used to have an LBC show. I used to, uh, I still go on Sky News once a week. And you spend your life talking about issues to do with the country. Uh, and you have these phrases or events that you know a little bit about, but not a lot about. You know, the Windrush generation being a really good example the last couple of weeks. People would have heard of Windrush, possibly, but maybe not thought about it at all until it comes and smacks them in, in the face. So I thought, well, I'm ignorant uh, so why don't I try and become less ignorant? And in the process of me becoming less ignorant, I might be able to go through a bunch of stuff that's happened in this country and explain it. So is there a sort of aspect of Britain for dummies to it? I mean, in the sense that, you know, you'll, you'll read this and you'll learn the difference between a green paper and a white paper. There's a bit of that. And in fact, I am the dummy. So that's, that's fair. I just think we don't have the, either the time or the inclination often to, to find out about stuff. It's easy to have an opinion. It's hard to find out the facts behind it. And a lot of facts then get obscured and twisted. And um, this is not really party political. I'm not tribal in any way. I'm not really part of any inside circle. I've never, I'm not a proper journalist. Uh, I'm not a lobby person. I talk a lot about politics and ideas because of the nature of the jobs I've done and I do, but I'm not really inside anywhere. So I don't really have any axe to grind. It's simply saying, oh... What is it about? What is the OECD? What's PISA scores? Why, why is our education system such a colossal, weird mess? Why did the NHS happen? All of those relatively straightforward questions that I imagine some politically informed journalists would be a bit sniffy about. I don't have to be sniffy about because I thought, well, I don't know enough about it. I better go and find out. Yeah. Actually, you seem to have, I think for a lot of people, finding it quite hard to place because in your career, you've sort of zinged from the very highbrow position you occupy now to less highbrow positions you know, you've been a sort of gamekeeper turned poacher in some respects because you were the youngest ever director of the PCC as was. The only straight one. The only straight one. Um, <laughs> proud moment for tokenism. And then you, you, you became managing editor of The Sun at one point. Yeah. So, so as a radio host in you know, the LBC thing, you sort of 
Ramoning panty waist libtard sort of exactly. Figure. I got a lot of that. Um, you got a lot of that. Yeah. And you know this weird portfolio career. Where do you see yourself standing? I say in the introduction actually. This term grew up in, in the sort of post Corbyn election near victory euphoria of centrist dad, which was this sort of term of abuse by Corbynistas to say to about moderates, about Blairites. And I'm not a Blairite. I'm not a Labour person, but I kind of thought I'm a dad. I kind of believe in fairness on both sides, sort of. So I'm, I'm sort of centrist. Why don't I try and occupy that position? And that's kind of what I always, I always have done. People hate not being able to pigeonhole people. And this world we live in, this hugely polarised world, if you try and think about each issue on its own merits and if you're not tribal, people are deeply suspicious of you. And liberals are the most suspicious tribe of them all. So there's a bunch of people who'll never forgive me for working at the Sun. Yes, you still got a lot of stick on Twitter. Yeah, whenever you yeah, post you, anything highbrow or anything to it, the left. How can you do that? And my views have been stated in public for years. You know, I've had this LBC show where I was regularly accused of being a sort of libtard Ramona. And then I go onto Twitter and I'm accused of being a Nazi because I worked at, at the Sun. And my view has always been, I've done jobs because they're interesting and because they've been the next thing that was available to me. I'm not a grand schemer. You know, I've got a family and I've got a life to live and I've got to try and have a mortgage and I've got to try and live and that's no great greater scheme than that but people hate the idea that they can't pigeonhole you so if you there's some people who have a certain political view particularly on the very liberal left side and they just think you worked at the sun therefore you are beyond the pale irredeemable scum that's a point of view it's a point of view and look I, I believe in free speech so except to the point and your people then say stuff like they want to kill you or I've had people say they want to rape my nine-year-old daughter uh, I was on Sky just last night and someone started this whole thread about raping my wife uh, by name, knowing her name. And it's hard to overstate the kind of cloacal nature of public discourse. And I kind of am an easy target from both ends to a certain extent. And I can get very much and women unquestionably get it worse. And it's not a moan by me, but I do feel we don't really able anymore to say someone might believe this about one issue and something different about another issue and that's just them trying to respond to what is a complicated world and no one should believe anything 100% that's what I feel really really strongly that I don't believe anything 100% I don't believe in anyone 100% um, and actually it's intellectually dishonest to pretend that you do but we seem to have got into a world and you've written about this for the TLS about in the real fake news where you have to be on one team or another but I don't want to be on one team. And people who are only on one team are kidding themselves. Well, that, that messiness is something that comes through in your account of the Britain in the book. I mean, I think you talk early on, there's a lovely quote from Thomas Pynchon you have. Yes. You, you say, you know, th- 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 this is a sort of massive, you know, heuristic, cobbled together things, the common law and our you know, constitution and so forth, are all kind of muddled up through history. And you say, Pynchon from Gravity's Rainbow, decisions are never really made. At best, they manage to emerge from a chaos of peeves, whims, hallucinations and all-round assholery. That is Britain. I mean, he's obviously American, but that is absolutely to my mind. There's another quote from William uh, Goldman, the Hollywood screenwriter, who says, nobody knows anything. That's about how Hollywood works. No one knows what film will ever work. And he's absolutely right about that. And it's, it's absolutely true for us. If you look at all of our institutions, this is the thing that kept coming back to me. No one has invented them. No one would say this is the education system we should have in this country. No one has planned it. No one would say this is the NHS we should have in this country because it starts out somewhere. And then what happens over years and years and years, there's accretions and amputations and little bits fiddled with and little bits added on. And each year or every five years at the very, very most, someone else comes in. But it's far in education, there's been something like 30 education secretaries in the last 40 years or something ridiculous like that. So there is no plan. There is no strategy. It's this endless ongoing muddle. 
And it's no surprise in that sense, two things, A, that it often doesn't work, and B, that we're kind of used to it not working. So another theme that comes off is the sort of persistent inequality that exists in this country, and it's by geography, by age, by gender, by, by race, by all sorts of things. And we're kind of used to it because it's been there the last 20 years, it's been there 20 years before that. And that's how we cope as a country, we just sort of muddle on. Is this, I mean, in a sense, this is quite a kind of trad conservative position, isn't it? That, you know, it's always said that, you know, ideas on the left work in principle, but not in practice, and ideas on the right work in practice, but not in principle. Yeah. Do you, do you think Britain does work? It's difficult. I, the, the last two quotes of the book are, one's T.S. Eliot, Hollow Men, this is the way the world ends, this is the way the world ends, not with a bang but a whimper. And the other is a kind of version of Beckett from The Unnameable, which is, we can't go on, we must go on, we'll go on. And I think Britain muddles on, and that there's a resilience to Britain, and there's a kind of beautiful persistence about Britain. But I don't think very much of it works how it's intended to. You know, we don't have a particularly good education system if you compare it to other countries. We don't have a particularly good health system if you compare it to other countries. You know, if you have cancer in this country, you'd be better off living in most other European countries in uh, because they, they'll treat you better. Well, we, we better go quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then you add Brexit. So I do a little bit about Brexit. Because it is a moving target, of course. I mean, you've written this book, and if you like, almost the most difficult time for such a book to be written. Yeah, I, le- I left the politics I left the politics chapter till the end, and Brexit was burbling on. And I don't. I try not to talk about the definite outcomes of Brexit, because who knows? But there are some things to say. I mean, my view on Brexit has always been, I totally understand the theory behind it. I totally understand why people want to claim sovereignty, and there's lots of intellectual reasons why leaving the EU is a good thing. But the cost-benefit analysis is ridiculous to me. If you look at all the opportunity costs, the amount of man-hours, the amount of money that will be spent doing it, for an eventuality, the best case scenario is not going to be dramatically better in my view. So I think if you were looking at it lucidly rather than politically, you would say this is too big a bet for too small a reward. And I think that's how the results I, are not good. Yeah. And so that's why I feel you can make a case against Brexit while still understanding why we've ended up with it. For lots of the reasons I mentioned, you know, there are lots of the fundamental inequalities that you talk about will lead to a bunch of people who'll be angry. And they'll genuinely believe, correctly, things can't get a lot worse, so why not pump for change? And I totally understand that. In that conversation, the whole immigration issue has been massively played over back and forth. And But one of the things that seem in the sovereignty argument seems to come through is that people remain quite confused about how the law works, quite understandably. And, you know, this idea of that European law is massively sovereign over British law or that, Europe, you know, human rights law... You know, Europe's imposing various yeah. things. I mean, is that something you... I try and clarify that, you know, because, for example, Human Rights Act was incorporated as a British law in 1998, and adherence to that has nothing to do with being in the EU or not. So once we leave the EU, we'll still have the Human Rights Act enforced. It's not a thing to do with the EU. It's, it's a, something that exists separate. To it. There's a separate court that enforces it. There is a court, the European Court of Justice, that deals with EU matters, And even now we don't know how many laws are EU laws and how many are British because they'll cover areas that we probably would have to cover anyway. Um, And if we have a trading relationship with the EU, which of course we'll need to, there'll need to be an arbiter that says, sets certain standards and deals with disputes. So again, it's another example of a muddle. And the problem, the classic problem with Brexit is it was a binary yes-no question in an area that's a massive muddle or, put it more politely, it's on a spectrum of, of, of possibility. And when you have binary question spectrum answer you end up with a colossal problem and that's exactly what we've ended up with so this is a definitive position 
We answer it not definitively, 52-48, and in any event, the answer can't be definitive because what do we do with the Northern Ireland border? What do we do with the customs union? What do we do with this trade relationship? What do we do with relationships with other countries? All of that was fudged or ill-thought-out or impossible to consider until you do it. And that was, I think, the great dishonesty about the campaign around Brexit, apart from actual dishonesties like the 350 million thing. There is this notion that there was a certain answer and Jonathan Coe, I think, did a tweet which I thought was brilliant, which was 5248 actually means don't know. And we treated it like it meant yes, 100%. And of course, the two don't go together. We don't know what to do. And dirigiste Brexiteers will say that the people have spoken, you know, this is democracy. And actually, 5248 doesn't really mean anything. And actually, I was interested to learn, I was looking at devolution. In 79, of course, there was a... Uh, Scotland voted for devolution and they didn't get 60% of the electorate voting for it, so it didn't happen. So someone somewhere put in a plan to say, unless there's a clear majority, we won't do it. Why did Cameron not do that for Brexit? Well, we'll have to ask him. How important is it that Britain has this unwritten constitution? I mean, do you think that's kind of key to the way the nation works? I think it is. Uh, and I was looking at the Bill of Rights, actually, from the 17th century, and it has a it has a clause in it about the right for Protestants to bear arms against sort of those evil Catholics. And of course... Our we, own Second Amendment. It is our own Second Amendment, and we just ignore it, because the Bill of Rights isn't a proper constitution, uh, and we're just not used to, to thinking of rules in, in that way. So it's, a, it's, it's the classic British fudge, which is the advantage is we get on with things, and things just happen and we and we move on and we, we, we adapt. The downside is we're not entirely clear what we're supposed to be doing. And the downside of, of not having a constitutional mentality means we lack clarity in lots of areas, I think. We don't really know what our fundamental rights are. And the Tories always talk about doing another Bill of Rights or and they never do it because it's too difficult to do. And in fact, they now can't do anything because they'll be struggling with no uh, majority until they get either kicked out or another parliament comes along where they won't have a majority either i mean i I think the stasis of britain is going to be here for a while although as i talk about in the politics chapter the great lesson of making any political predictions is they'll be wrong in about 35 minutes so i say that and and of course there could be a crashing corbyn majority at the next election of 150 and a revolution will start good well yes if 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 you're proved very wrong we'll put the podcast back up yeah yeah exactly i'll Um, try to do something for the paperback exactly can you also say In the course of researching this book, which ranges over everything from law, politics, economics, what was the thing you found out that surprised you most? I I don't know if this should be surprising. I found the arguments around grammar schools just so insane that it's just not a straightforward question, that obviously grammar schools are fundamentally structurally unfair to society. They don't benefit other than the people who attend them. I can't believe it it still exists as a political issue. And everything I read about it, people I spoke to, people who'd gone to secondary moderns, people who'd gone to grammar schools, I completely understood why people would say it benefited me, I got social mobility, I was a provincial kid, got to a grammar school, went to Oxford, and that's lovely. But the notion that that benefits society at all, I find baffling. And everything that you look at seems to me to be... um, in favour of saying that once you benefit a certain small group of people, you're necessarily going to be harming a larger group. And that seems to be the case in grammar schools. The education system generally, looking at what happened in 1944, when they had this chance to to start again, Rab Butler did, feels like such a missed opportunity that we're still living with. And and now we have this weird world of faith schools and free schools and academies and, and grammar schools and independent schools and 
council-run state schools. It's a total colossal mess. And I was really surprised at just the state that our education system both started in and has gotten into, because we don't value education in this country. You know, we don't treat, treat why don't we treat teachers like doctors? Why are teachers not as important as doctors? They are in other countries. You know, countries that do well educationally, they value the best civil servants, the best educated people, become teachers. In Finland, to become a primary school teacher, you have to have five years of university and write a dissertation on pedagogy. Why? But we don't in this country. We say to teachers... Yeah, you might have to up the salaries to... Well, you did, but why don't, we, why don't we value that? I read this great book in 1905 uh, called The Schoolmaster by a guy who was went to Eton. And he basically says in 1905, well, we don't really value teaching because it's the seen as the job that people do if they can't think of anything else to do. And that was in 1905. And there's a large chunk of that now. We shouldn't think like that. And it's madness because, you, you know, you've got kids. When there's a brilliant teacher, it's transformative. It's just, oh, God, my kid's got an amazing teacher. But the chance of that happening, if you pay someone 20 grand a year and at the beginning expect them to do all of this stuff without real qualifications... How many of them are going to stick around? Well, a third of them leave within five years. So I, I found the education system a particular surprising mess. One of the messes in which you were very directly involved is the press issue. You know, you yeah. were at PCC for the, you know, for Leveson, you described very poignantly being you know, in your late 20s and early 30s and suddenly being absolutely at the centre of this colossal shitstorm. And, <laughs> you know, um, Having a breakdown, really. Have more or less, yes, you know. I hadn't quite realised how dreadful it was for you. Though, well, I don't think it was that, well, I, I didn't handle it very well. I don't, I'm, I'm sure a stronger person would have handled it better. Well, one thing you say in, say in the book, which slightly surprised me, because we all think of, for the most part, the whole phone hacking scandal as being a news international one. That it, but you, you do say in the book that you think it actually started in the mirror. Well, I think that's almost accepted now as part of the, the, the tradition of this story. I mean, this is not to exculpate... The news of the world, I think the news of the world was was tremendously flagrantly guilty of just not caring about people's privacy. But if you look at the the mirror cases which they've all settled, and I think the the lawyer for the, some of the victims said, and he's no friend of News Corp or News International or Murdoch or anything like that, said, so, you know, it makes it look like a cottage industry at the news of the world or went out in the mirror. What clearly happened was some showbiz journalists, probably at the mirror group, started finding out you could hack into people's phones. That then spread to other newspapers primarily the news of the world, where it became a big deal, where they did it a lot. And it just wasn't handled at all well. It should have been dealt with in, 19, in 2006 when Clive Goodman was arrested, the royal correspondent. There could have been a clean-out there to find out what had gone wrong and to deal with it. And there wasn't. And then it became this perfect political storm because the sun turned on Labour. Uh, uh, 2009, I think, they, uh, the day Gordon Brown was giving his conference speech. The Sun came out against Labour in a very provocative, aggressive fashion. Uh, Murdoch was trying to buy Sky, so three quarters of the industry then tried to to block him, you know, including the BBC, uh, the Telegraph. Um, there was this incredible evidence that existed in the form of Glenmore Care's notebooks, which no one had acknowledged. There were select committees pouring all over it. The Guardian pursued a really legitimate story, but they also despised. Murdoch. They despised Andy Coulson. They couldn't believe Cameron had allowed him to the gates of number 10. All of those things created this perfect storm for an industry, let's be honest, which was buggered anyway. So it then became crisis upon crisis upon crisis. And, and Leveson was a healthful experience, I think. Cause, you know, you know, editors, they're incredibly bashful creatures. They love giving it out and they hate 
taking it back and they like to be anonymous and they like to sit behind their desks and, and, and pour scorn out the world and they hate being the focus of attention. So I found Leveson perfectly legitimate as a process. It just came up with no answer because there's fundamentally yes, you, I mean, no what, Looking at it now from, well, sort of semi-outside it, you know, you're no longer at the heart of all this. What, we have a sort of press regulation situation now that's kind of absurd. What yeah. do you think we should have? Do you look back and think we, we should have the PCC back? No, I think, think? I, I think uh, we should end up with what they have in America, which is individual ombudsman for newspapers. I, I think it's a bizarre argument. Newspapers are fundamentally screwed. I mean, screwed to a catastrophic extent. The media industry as a whole is screwed to a catastrophic extent. Uh, people who consume traditional media are dwindling and they're getting older. Uh, Facebook is completely dominant in this area. Facebook and Google completely take all the money uh, that newspapers used to, to make. I think newspapers uh, just turned over 10 years ago 4 billion and, this, and a year ago turned over 2 billion. So they've halved in their amount of money they take in. Their costs have gone up. They're trying to do everything in this crap digital world where everyone just tries to churn out 3,000 stories of what someone said on Twitter, stealing off each other, this sort of ecosystem, I call it, in the book of crapness. And meanwhile, Facebook, which we're starting to care about a bit while still using it, uh, that they're taking our data, taking all the advertising money, and don't contribute anything back. Facebook is a, is a giant, brilliant parasite. Google is a giant, brilliant parasite. They take money, they don't contribute to anything. And people might say, well, that's fine, because all of that crap stuff deserves to go. But as I say in the book, if you judge everything by what people will click on, there'll be a million stories about Kim Kardashian's knees, and there'll be no stories about local councils. And when you see something like Grenfell happen, or court cases or the boring things that newspapers however much people might dislike them and might despise the express or the sun or the mail they might do all sorts of things that people don't like but they'd also send people to court to do some reporting they would also knock on doors they'd, they'd bother the chancellor of the exchequer when they cock up they'd have a go at people they'll it almost makes me nostalgic for the days of richard desmond there you had a you relate a very funny encounter with this well i went to i can't remember where it what was, do you call I, him the citizen kane of rubbish journalism uh, napoleon the napoleon i was thinking of count fosco from the woman in white the napoleon of crime and I was thinking <laughs> richard desmond with his little piggy face was the napoleon of, of, of dreadful journalism and actually the express is now owned by the mirror although that might be blocked for plurality reasons but you can see already the express is a better paper when the mirror are running it because uh, it just doesn't do sort of crap things about statins and, and uh, immigrants which is w w the only thing they pretty much covered but I met him once when I was at the PCC and I, 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 someone's introduced me to him and he just looked at me and he went you fucking queer and I was like, actually as it happens no I'm, I'm not and he went oh you've got a beard and then walked off and that was my dealings with, with, with Richard Desmond. I don't really know what you can, can or should say about that, but it just... Well, it makes an impression. It did make an impression, and he made an impression by taking... I mean, the Express, before, well before my time, was a proper newspaper, and it used to be much bigger than the Mail. And it's hard to yeah, believe that. Yeah, 60s and 50s. Yeah, it's hard to believe that now. Yeah. Yeah, and now it's just... I mean, maybe it'll get a bit better, but the Mirror, you know, the Mirror group is declining. You know, I think it was Rupert Murdoch who said there's going to be three papers that survive, The Times, The Sun and The Mail. And I think that at the very least, that's a very open question, whether it'll be even as many as that. On a more cheerful note, well, certainly the context in which I first came across you was as a literary critic, as a book reviewer. Yeah, I used to write uh, for you for The Telegraph and, and Spectator. Yes. This book, animatingly, you don't have a further reading that's a collection of, you know, David Kiniston's social histories of yeah. Britain. It's, it's a list of fiction. Yeah. And clearly you think there's a sense of sort of fiction and our untrue narratives contribute a lot to what holds us together. I think that's right. And actually, I find fiction... I mean, I talk about a bit of mental health in it. Fiction, to me, is 
rereading certain books is is fundamental to my mental health and I think without it I, I would sort of collapse and so I find reading very important I, I tell you know I used to when I was a kid I'm the last of the pre-internet generation so when I went to university in 1998 I didn't have an email address I didn't have a phone I had a phone when I was 20 I had a pager at university so because I didn't have a phone people had to call my pager I was like a drug dealer but but not a drug dealer but I would say that arranging sort of assignations uh over pager is a sort of oddly romantic thing to do. Some sort of leaves a message. Yes, all sorts of people who were Labour spads in the late nineties kind of pager. Remember those free songs? Yeah, yeah. There, there was a, there was a free uh, the free song there. But so I'm the last person. So when I was growing up, there was a finite amount of books in my house, and I would reread and reread them. So I'd read Bill Bryson, for example, as the person I, I mentioned in the book as someone who I used to read a lot of. Um, but I had this book with the Reader's Encyclopedia, William Rose Benet, and it was this account of all the things ever mentioned in literature, world literature from zero to, I think, 1965, when the book was published. And so I've just got this fondness for for reading and rereading things that contribute to a sense of who you are and, and making sense of things and at, a, at an emotional level and an intellectual level. And so when I was doing this, I thought, well, the book's split into different chapters. I've read fun books that broadly touch on them. I mean, most of them are British. I've, I've, I've thrown in some non-British ones because I think they're illustrative. So in the media section, I've done The Quiet American, which I suppose is, is British. Annie Proulx's Shipping News, which I love, which is about local newspaper. Yeah. The Gammy Bird, a bit of Dostoevsky in the Crime and Punishment section um, and things like that. But it's just books that I'd read that meant something to me. And also, I think if you read all of them, there's 80 of them, you'd have a sense of how... Britain works. Yes. There was a, what struck me, as you, you know, as you say quite earlier, the author you love most, in a sense, is P.G. Woodhouse. Absolutely. And he runs like a sort of golden thread for this. And yet, of course, Woodhouse paints a portrait of a Britain, an imagined Britain, that sort of never quite existed. And, you know, it, it, it's a sort of Edwardian fantasy, isn't it? It is. Yeah. And, and I think that's what makes him so readable, because it's not real. And, but the problems happen and they're solved and they're solved charmingly. And the problems, even if they weren't solved, wouldn't matter. You know, they're sort of rich people arguing about inheritances or uh, angry aunts or, or love affairs that will probably turn out all right in the end. But I honestly think I read P.G. Woodhouse every single day um, because um, for 10 minutes at the end of the day, I read it in the bath or I, I, I just sit there. Before I go to bed, I'll read a bit of P.G. Woodhouse almost obsessively, which is probably not that healthy, but again and again and again. And I love Smith, so I recommend... I, it was all I could do not to recommend every single... But I have Smith in the City, which is when, when the character goes to join a bank. But also my favourite ever novel is Smith Journalist, which is where Smith, who's this uh, old Etonian... Well, he didn't go to eat me, he looks like an old Etonian figure in a monocle, kind of posh, but also sort of very resolute. And he goes to America and he... Have you read it, Smith Journalist? I haven't read Smith Journalist, no. It is the best book on journalism. Everyone will tell you the best book on journalism is Scoop. And or towards the end of the morning. Yeah, or towards yeah. the morning, which I've mentioned both of them, but they're not. After this, if you do one thing, go and buy Smith Journalist. He goes to America and he, by sleight of hand, takes control over a magazine called Cozy Moments, which is an American magazine designed for the sort of suburban middle classes. It's very cozy and lovely. And he turns it into a campaigning newspaper that goes against uh, slum landlords in New York. And the landlords fight back and he has to battle them. And meanwhile, the circulation goes up uh, and it becomes this centre of New York life. And there's a boxing match in it. There's these descriptions of, of urban poverty. 
it's an incredible but it's not that Woodhousian in that sense but it's just filled with this spirit and this joy and I find that that's what Woodhouse delivers all the time you can read any of them Mulliner you can read the Blandings books Jeeves and Worcester but Smith is this great figure to me and if if honestly Sam read Smith journalist that's if you do one thing having listened to this book and you don't want to read my book Try and read my book, but if you read one other book, read Smith Jones. Or buy Stig's book and read Smith Jones. That, that, I'm very happy with that. And it's Stig Obel, thank you very much. Thank you.